This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. We have the second reading of the scripture today, and this is taken from Luke chapter 15. And as you take time to uh, flip your Bible or your app to Luke 15, I'd like to invite Caris up to read the scripture for us. And following that, Pastor Andrew will bring us the sermon. Today's scripture reading is taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, There is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pots that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here, I'm starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. 
the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of God. Hey, thanks very much for the Bible being really well read to us then. And also, um, just want to make sure that the people in that far corner can hear me clearly because this morning uh, the speakers died. So that's why those speakers are not uh, working. We're just using the small speakers from the floor. So uh, hopefully you can hear me well. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come to these powerful words of Jesus, which are recorded for us in the Gospel of Luke, we really want to ask that uh, for those of us who are familiar with these really important and, uh, and very sharp and profound parables that you may help us to continue to gain insight into them and to really feel the full force of the message that your word is speaking to us. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. What brings you the most joy? What brings you the most joy in the world? For some people, it's pets. They tell me walking their dog or spending time with their cats is something that they really find really joyful. For some other people, it may be sports, riding their bicycle, playing soccer, getting on the golf course. For some other people, it may be holidays, you know, lying on the beach, exploring a new city, meeting interesting people. That's what gives them most joy. But today as Christians, we ask ourselves, should our knowledge of God, should our relationship with God change the way we feel joy? Should the way we interact with God and know God change the things that we feel most joy about? Now today's passage begins with the setting in verse 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So this is the setting 
of the parables, right? This is what shapes the parables. The parables were written in response to these issues. And what was happening here? Well, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and teachers of law were unhappy with Jesus. The sinners were those who were seen to be unfaithful to God in their lifestyle. They were breaking the law, breaking the traditions of the religious leaders. The tax collectors were seen as traitors. These people were collecting money from God's people to pay the Romans who were occupying them. And more often than not, they were also seen as extorting money from people. They were taking more than what they were required to. So in the eyes of the religious leaders and many of the people, these tax collectors and sinners were outsiders. They were rejected and they were despised. But not to Jesus, right? These tax collectors and sinners, they were all gathering around to hear Jesus. And what was Jesus doing? He was welcoming them. He was eating with them. He was having table fellowship with them. And in those days, table fellowship meant goodwill, friendship, and warmth. And so the religious leaders, they were muttering. They were muttering against Jesus. Now, this word muttering is only used twice in the New Testament and both times in the book of Luke. And this word muttering here, I think, is deliberately used by Luke. And we're going to come back to it again. And I just want to point it out to you. Because this word muttering is always used in the Old Testament as a word where God's people complain against God. They are grumbling against God. And so we can see that just from a few examples that I'm going to draw your attention to. So in Exodus chapter 15, when God's people, during God's great saving act of bringing them from Egypt to Israel, when they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. And that's why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled, same word, right? Grumbled, muttered against Moses, what shall we drink? They were complaining about. Again, in Exodus chapter 16, in the desert, the whole community same word, grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. And again, in Numbers chapter 14, same thing. So what we see here is that right from the very beginning, we're given hints by Luke that God's people right, are doing the same thing as they were doing when God was doing the mighty act of bringing them from Egypt to Israel, they were complaining, grumbling, muttering against God and God's mighty acts of salvation. But this time, not against Moses and Aaron, but against Jesus himself. And so Jesus tells them this parable in response to their muttering or complaining. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. First thing I want you to notice here is this question that Jesus asks. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? This question that Jesus asks in the parable implicitly answers itself, right? The answer is yes. Yes. It is the normal expectation that if you had 100 sheep, you lost one, you go and look for it. Because what we're looking at here is not some big sheep farming operation, right? It's probably a family-run farming thing. 
And a hundred sheep, if you lose one every once in a while, after a while you end up with no sheep, right? So the expectation is that if you had a hundred sheep and you lost one, you would go and find that sheep. And the point that Jesus is trying to say is emphasize because the person would go after the lost sheep until they would find that sheep. Now what he's trying to say here is that that sheep, that lost sheep is actually really valuable to the shepherd. Now in the ancient world, this is a picture that I took from a, a, a Bible a book that I have, and this is what is the reality, right? This is the sort of countryside that uh, the shepherds would be walking through when they were bringing the sheep around. Now imagine walking through this countryside looking for your lost sheep at night. It would be dangerous, right? You could step in a hole, break your leg. There would be wild animals around. There could be robbers. But the shepherd, because the sheep is so valuable, will keep looking for the sheep until he finds that sheep, puts the sheep on the shoulder, carries the sheep home. And so the whole point of the first part of the parable is that the sheep are valuable. The sheep are valuable. But the parable goes on. And he says, when he finds that sheep, he joyfully puts it on his shoulder and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together. He says, hello, everybody, come and rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. Now, if verse 4, which is in yellow, is the normal response, then verse 6 is the abnormal response, right? Because no normal person does this. Lah. You go and look for your sheep, you bring it home, and then you go to bed, right? Who invites all their friends and relatives and neighbors to come for a big party? This is kind of like going over the top, right? Overboard. I mean, this is not something people expect. And that's why Jesus doesn't say, doesn't he go and call his friends and neighbors and invite them? Right? Because that's not what you normally do. But the point that Jesus is trying to make in the parable is that this abnormal, over-the-top rejoicing and joy, joy, joy is exactly what happens right, when a sinner is saved. Right? There's this repeated theme of joy, joy, rejoicing, rejoicing over the one sinner who repents. And what we're really supposed to see here is the contrast between the response of God in heaven, the Father, the Shepherd, to the one sinner who is saved, to the grumbling and the complaining of the Pharisees, to the welcome of Jesus in trying to save them. So what we see here is that God's rejoicing is totally exceptional, but the Pharisees' response is the complete opposite of complaining and grumbling and muttering. Now, that's why they are against Jesus. That's why they are hostile to Jesus, right? Because Jesus, in a sense, is on God's rescue mission. He's sent by God to do this mighty act of salvation, which brings overwhelming rejoicing in heaven when these sinners turn back to God. Oh, must thank Elijah. Okay, must give accreditation. This is Elijah's picture, okay? All right. So, you know, what we're really seeing here is, is, an, is, an, is it's a contrast between God's response and man's response, which is the Pharisees. 
But that's not the only surprise that we see here, right? The rejoicing in heaven over the sinner who is saved. But there's also other kind of like jarring note of repentance. Because the, the sheep cannot repent, right? The sheep cannot repent. So what's happening here? Why is it there's rejoicing over one sinner who repents? Why this word repent? Because obviously the shepherd leaves the 99 sheep. He goes to look for the other sheep. He finds the sheep. He puts the sheep on the shoulder. He goes back. Where is the repentance, right? There is no work done by the sheep in the sense that the sheep allows itself to be found and saved. But the point that Jesus is trying to make here is that the sinner who is found, the sinner who is saved, does not return back to God and remain as they were. The sinner who comes back to God cannot come to salvation on their own terms, but they come to God on God's terms and Jesus' terms. They do not come as they are. And so in two weeks' time, as we do the Saturday seminar, how to read the Bible faithfully, in one of the seminars, we're going to listen to a little tape. Oh, actually, you don't have tapes anymore. Sorry, a little podcast by Dick Lucas. Right, He's the previous pastor at St. Helens. And he's going to speak on this. And he gives this very great phrase. Right, He says, actually, God does the maximum for our salvation. God does the maximum for our salvation. But we sinners need to give our maximum, likewise, to meet God on His terms. And that's what repentance is. That's what repentance is necessary. Now, we then come to the next parable. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, I want you to see there's a progression. One out of 100 sheep, one out of 10 coins. And so Jesus asked the same question. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? Must be yes, right? Because the coin is valuable to this woman. So the idea of value is repeated. But I think the core of the, the parable, which links this parable back to the previous parable, is the idea of rejoicing, rejoicing. We've seen this repeated word rejoicing. We've seen this repetition tool at work. But it's there in the structure. So if you give me a moment, I'll show you why that is. Okay? So here are the two parables side by side. You see in the parable of the lost sheep, it talks about the 99 sheep, left in the open country and the 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. You see the idea of the lost sheep and you see the idea of the finding of the lost sheep. But the center of the parable is about joy and rejoicing, right? Can you see that? And so in the same way, in the parable of the lost coin, we see the same pattern, the same structure, right? The lost coin, the finding of the coin, and again, at the center, the rejoicing that's at the heart of those two parables. And so what we are really supposed to see from these two parallels, these two parables, is the importance of seeing the response of God 
to the loss, to the saving of just one loss. What happens to the angels in heaven? What happens in heaven? What happens in God's heart? And in seeing this, it really challenges us. I think Luke is trying to challenge our hearts, right? He's calling to our hearts and asking the hard question. Do we feel joy the same way? Do you feel joy when you have non-Christians who are saved? You think of the non-Christian people or your work, your non-Christian friends at your, uh, at your, your classmates, your non-Christian relatives. Do you feel this same heart emotion to see them saved? Because if you don't share that same emotion of the Father, then is it no wonder that we are not enthusiastic about sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with them? There was a pastor I heard giving a sermon talking about how in, uh, in, in England he reaches out to the M people and how actually he finds that one of the greatest obstacles in bringing the M people to church is that the church people do not welcome them. But isn't that a problem? Because these Christian people in church have not been transformed in their emotions to feel the joy at seeing these lost people saved. I was uh, going to Helping Hand a few weeks ago where we had a seminar of pastors and one of the pastors was saying that actually in their church they really want to invite Helping Hand members to come to their congregation. But the people in the congregation are not willing to accept and welcome these Helping Hand extra addicts. But again, you have to ask, are people's hearts then not, and their feelings not transformed to share the joy of the Father to see these ex drug addicts come who were lost but now are saved. There was a Singaporean pastor that I knew who was actually a missionary pastor to Wales in England. Oh, sorry, I cannot say that. Wales in the United Kingdom. Okay, this is different. I always get it mixed up. Wales in the United Kingdom. And he was saying about how he wants to invite Asian students to the church that he's serving at. And one of the wives or the elders said to him, oh, you know, we really don't like you inviting these Asian students to church because we don't like how smelly their food is. But again, you see, doesn't that reflect that the person's heart has not been transformed to share the joy that the Father has in seeking and saving the lost? Well, the passage then goes on to speak. Oh, sorry, I've got some diagrams here. Okay. okay. So there's another parable, the third parable, and all the three parables have to be read together. Okay, we'll see that again when we do the seminar on how to read the Bible faithfully. Because the third parable is actually very key to explaining and unpacking what's happening in the first two parables. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The, one the, the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Now I want you first of all to see the progression again, right? One out of a hundred sheep, one out of ten coins, one out of two sons. Again, this emphasis on value, right? The laws are really, really valuable to God. But here we see in this very first three verses the visual picture of sin, right? Because we've kind of like been talking about sin in a very abstract way. Right? What is sin? How are they lost? Well, 
The younger one said to his father, give me my share of the estate. Now, I want you to imagine you go to your own father, well, and you said to your father, hey, can you give me my inheritance now, right? Your father will probably say, what do you think? I'm not even dead, you want your inheritance, right? It would be really offensive to your father for you to go and ask for your inheritance before they die. But in a way, that's what this son is doing, right? He's not saying that the father is physically dead, but he's saying he's relationally dead before him. And that's what sin is. Sin is basically saying that God relationally is dead before me, right? It's like, I'm cut off from God. And that's what this younger son is doing. He's cutting himself off from his father. Verse 13 says, after he got his inheritance, he set off for a distant country. Now the parable, in a sense, works in a geographical, metaphorical, visual way, right? By setting off to a distant country, in a sense, he's putting himself far away, far, far away from his father, right? And that's what sin is in another way. In a sense, we are making ourselves distant from God. Right? And that's what sin is. We, we in, geographically, not necessarily, but in a very metaphorical way, we, we, we distance ourselves from God. And that's what this younger son does. And there in this distant country, what does he do? He squanders his wealth on wild living. Later on, the elder son will say that he spent all his money on prostitutes. And so here, this person cut himself off from God. God is dead to this person. And he lives his life centered on his own passions, centered on living outside of his father's rules and his father's will and his father's house. Now, if this section here is a visual picture of sin, then the next picture is really a visual picture of repentance. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Maybe like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and went to see his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and filled him with compassion for him. Or filled with compassion for him, he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Now here we see, in many senses, a visual picture of repentance, right? He goes off to this far country and he comes to his senses. Okay, this is very important, right? Because the first step of repentance is the mind, right? To acknowledge the, the consequences of sin. To acknowledge the life of sin. And that's what this son comes to while he is in living in this terrible state where as a Jew, he's feeding the unclean pigs, he's starving, he's got no friends who will give him anything. He realizes the depths to which he has fallen. So he comes to the senses of his sin and the consequence of sin. Then 
he realizes that he needs to confess his sin. Father, he says, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Now, within the logic of the parable, sinning against the Father and sinning against heaven are like the same, right? Because the Father is God, sinning against heaven is just another way of saying, I've sinned against God. He confesses his sin, he comes to his senses. He then also says, I'm not worthy, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And so here is a person who doesn't make any excuses for his sins. There is no self-justification for their sins. There's no self-righteousness. There is no claim on God saying, because I've done something, you, you, know, you owe me so that you take me back. No, he recognizes his genuine unworthiness because he has sinned. There's no call or claim or demand on God that God should take him back. And so he makes his way back to the Father. He says and does what he was going to do. Now, the next section then is the Father's response, right? The Father's response. So he got up and went to his Father. And while he was still a long way off, his Father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and earth and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, put the best robe, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and so they began to celebrate. Now, if I was in the crowd that day, if you were in the crowd that day, if you were a Jew in the crowd that day, if you were a Pharisee in the crowd that day, everything from the beginning of the parable to verse 19, you would be nodding your head saying, yes, yes, yes. See, see this guy, offensive to his, brother, uh, to his father, disrespectful to his father, he got what he deserved, and now he's crawling back to his father on his knees, but verse 20 to 24, the Jews will be shaking their heads and saying, there's something wrong with this father, right? He's, he, the, the forgiveness and grace that he's showing his son is just too much. Every element, every detail that we're given here shows the, in a sense, reckless and foolish and even irresponsible grace and forgiveness shown towards that son. And so in verse 20, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and filled with compassion for him. Now, what this is visually showing is, how would the father know that the son was returning when he was a long way off? It is a visual picture of the father who is always on the lookout for the son returning home, isn't it? It's like you can just imagine, okay, I mean, obviously... They don't have binoculars then, right? But you can just imagine that the father is there waiting and waiting for the lost son to return. He's looking out into the distance on the road to look for the son. He runs to the son and throws his arms around him and kisses him. So I remember hearing a sermon many years ago saying, you know, it's just so inappropriate what the 
the father is doing is almost like he's wearing slippers and he's running in these slippers and the slippers are coming off and he's running his bare feet to welcome the son and smother him with kisses. The father says, quick, right? It's not as if the father waits and puts the son on probation to see whether his repentance is genuine or, you know, makes him grovel a bit. The moment the son comes back and speaks to him quick, the father accepts him, gives him the best robe and puts a finger and sandals on his feet. So the the ring on his finger is not like a wedding ring or something ridiculous, right? But it's the signet ring which shows that you are now a member of the family. So here is the father who's looking out for the son. He's running to the son. He's welcoming back into the family. And again, that theme that we looked at in the first two parables, there is a great rejoicing, joy, 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 and celebration. And in verse 24, the reason is because this son of mine was dead, but is alive, he was lost, and is found. And this is the the heart of the reason why rejoicing is so important, right? It's so important because the son, in in a very real sense, is lost. He's lost without God. He's lost without salvation. He's outside the house of God. He's dead. He's dead in sin, eternal death in sin and judgment, but now is found and is alive. Now, this parable is such a powerful parable. Now, sometimes people say things to me that, oh, you know, I I, I want to be a Christian, but I really have done some really bad things in my life. There's some things that I know or maybe other people know of which I'm very ashamed of. But this parable is of such encouragement, right? Because we are, in a sense, all like the lost son. What the lost son did to the father was, in a sense, unforgivable as well. He went off, acted as if the father was dead, lived his life in a very self-centered, self-passionate way and just gave himself to wild living. But the father is looking out for him, waiting to welcome him. The moment you turn back in repentance, the father is like running back to you, embracing you and forgiving you and welcoming you into his house. So, if any of you here today are still lost, if any of you today are dead, then why remain in this state of lostness? Why remain in this state of dead? The Father is waiting for you. like He's looking out for you. He's wanting you to repent and return so that He may run to you and embrace you and welcome you into His family out of grace and forgiveness. So why remain outside of God's house? Why remain lost and dead? Now, the peril doesn't end there because, again, remember the context is very important, right? The context is in in reply to the setting of the Pharisees and the tax collectors who were muttering, grumbling, and complaining against the work of God through Jesus, right? And so, the first call to response really is if you're lost, to, be, to repent and be rescued. But there is more, right? There is more. The older brother. And the older brother represents the Pharisees, teachers of the law, and those who are angry at Jesus. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. 
So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property of prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Verse 31. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Okay, I'm going to ask you just to concentrate a little bit more for just a, you know, because this section is actually requires a bit of uh, in-depth thinking. So first of all, the other son comes back and the party has already started. That's how fast the grace and the forgiveness of God has already been shown, right? It's like, imagine you're on the field, you come back, hey, son is back, reinstated, wearing all the clothes, the sandals. It's immediate, right? This grace and forgiveness. But the older brother refuses to go in. He's angry. And the father went out and pleaded with him. Now, this word pleaded, right, is in a sense... uh, in the tense of, he repeatedly went out to plead with him. The picture here is of the father leaving the party, speaking to the son, hey, son, come back. Going back into the party, celebrating, and then coming out again, saying to the son, hey, come back. Come, come into the, the house and enjoy the celebration, right? And then he goes back in, still sees that the elder son doesn't come in, and goes out again, asks him to come back. He's, this is the idea of he's repeatedly entreating the son come back in. But the son, the eldest son, is refusing to come in. And why? He's angry. Why is he angry? And that's the question we really need to ask, right? Why is he so angry that he doesn't want to go into the house? First thing is that it seems like he's very self-righteous, right? Okay, so this is very important. This is where we need to pay attention. He's, he's very self-righteous. He believes that he, the way to salvation, the way to be in the house of God, so to speak, is by obedience. I've never disobeyed your orders, right? And so, when you put it to the context of what's happening, it's like the Pharisees thinking that Jesus is cheating, right? Jesus is giving this shortcut to these sinners who are not slaving away and obeying God's laws, but somehow they've cheated and they come to salvation. And here the Pharisees are like the eldest son, We've never disobeyed your orders, right? We follow all these laws and all these rules, and then suddenly these sinners come in. But when you look at this passage, in a way they are kind of like mistaken, right? It's too far. Because they've never disobeyed, or in their minds they think they've never disobeyed, but here we see that repeatedly they are disobeying the Father because repeatedly the Father is pleading for them to go into the house, but repeatedly they're refusing to go in. They're really resentful of the father, right? Because in their mind, they feel like the father is like a, treating them a bit like a slave master. Like he's very restrictive. He's not very generous at all. While at the same time, in verse 30, they feel that the father has been very generous, overly generous 
with the sinful son. But again, is that really true, right? Because in verse 31, it says, the father says, everything I have is yours. And so, the eldest son, in a sense, remains outside of the house. And so remember how I said that actually, within the parable, like distance actually means something, right? So before the younger son, he went to a distant country, he was far away from God, but now he's back in the house. But what we see now is actually the eldest son is outside of God's house. And he stays outside of God's house because he's angry. He's angry because he's self-righteous. He believes that the way to be saved is through his own obedience. And he's resentful of God. He's resentful of God's grace and forgiveness. What he doesn't really realize for himself is he himself is also not totally obedient to God in every way. And the way that he relates to God and the way that he sees the Father again is not totally appropriate. And so therefore, in many ways, the eldest son represents the Pharisees, right, who see themselves as self-righteous, who are resentful of Jesus reaching out to the lost sinners, and they are muttering and grumbling. And so what they are doing, these Pharisees, is no different from the people who were traveling from Egypt to the Promised Land. Both the people who are traveling to the promised land and the Pharisees and the teachers of law are resentful and angry against the mighty acts of salvation of God. Right? One was angry against Moses and Aaron as they were bringing them up to the promised land. Pharisees and experts in law are angry with Jesus for saving the sinners and the tax collectors. And so, uh, again, in two weeks' time, I'm preparing this book, and we're reading this book called The Whole Christ, and the author, Sinclair Ferguson, says, the first son, right, the lost son, represents returning to God and repenting, right? The father represents running, right? The running to the son to offer quick forgiveness. But the elder son, the angry son, represents refusing of God, and the rejecting of the mission of Jesus. And so for us, as we read this last parable, we recognize that actually all of us need to be returning to God. All of us need to be repenting. We cannot be like the eldest son, refusing God to join him, rejecting the rescue mission of Jesus Christ. And so, the second purpose, I suppose, as we look at Luke, is that if we are saved, we need to pursue the loss and to share the Father's glory. I want to ask you, right, what is the most valuable thing that you have lost and found? Okay, what is the most valuable thing that you have lost and then subsequently found? Okay, just think for a moment, okay, what have you Law, something really valuable, and then you search very hard, and then you found it. And how, how did you feel afterwards? I remember uh, many years ago, oh, I, I, we, my, my family, we lost uh, one of our sons uh, in uh, Changi Airport. Okay? And uh, you know how big Changi Airport is, right? It's, uh, it's like, you know, you can really lose someone. Anyway, so we went to look and find for this lost son, and then ultimately, we found 
our lost son, right? When we were very, very relieved and happy and overjoyed. I think this passage is challenging us, right? It's really challenging us. Luke is trying to, to call us to action, right? And it calls to our wills. And it says to us, you know, will we spend the same amount of effort to seek and search and save the lost sinner? You know, just as the effort that you put in to seek and find that lost thing that values so much to you, would you, would you do the same thing for the lost sinner? And when you find the lost sinner, will you feel the, the joy of, of God, the rejoicing that will come in finding this lost? Because that's what I think this passage is really calling us to do, right? It's, it's a call not just to the will and action, but a call to our hearts and our emotions as well. Because they're kind of like two things together, right? If you just do it in a very mechanical way, well, that doesn't really do anything, right? It's like, in a sense, we're not transformed by God's heart to feel, right? Just what is at stake when the lost is found and the dead is made alive again? So I hope for all of us here, if we are lost, we will repent and return to God and be rescued. If we are saved, we will pursue the lost and share the Father's joy. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that our relationship with you will be life-transforming in our hearts, in our minds, in our emotions, in our wills. We pray that if any of us here are lost today, if any of us here are like the lost son or the lost coin or the lost sheep, we will repent and return and be rescued. Help us to really know that you are God who is looking out into that distance, waiting and anticipating for the sinner to repent so that they may be met by you running towards them in shocking and reckless grace and forgiveness and be welcomed into your house. Dear Father, for us who are saved sinners, we pray that this passage will be a call to our will and action to seek and save the lost, to be sharing the same mission as Jesus, and also to be motivated in our hearts and in our emotions to feel that joy, 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 to know that when a person is saved, they are saved for eternity, that they were once lost but are now alive for eternity in heaven. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.